ночной шли вдвоем, а фонарики горели. И при виде их на момент прийти, и сердце нашей земле. Hello and welcome to the SRB podcast, where in each episode we discuss Eurasian politics, culture and history. As always, I'm your host, Sean Guillory. The SRB podcast is sponsored by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Pittsburgh and members of the SRB Table of Ranks, who give monthly contributions from anywhere between $5 to $25. If you'd like to support the podcast, go to my Patreon page at patreon.com slash Sean's Russia blog or to the podcast website, seansrussiablog.org and hit that Patreon button and join the Table of Ranks. Maps are all about turning chaos into order. They give us location and direction. They also demarcate difference, whether it be national, regional, geographic, or ethnographic. But the map is also a fetish, because cartography hides the deeply emotional tales of the mapmakers, their relationships and ideologies, their biases and worldviews. This week's guest, Stephen Siegel, peels back the map to look at the map men, specifically five geographers that played key roles in defining and redefining borders, territories, and nations of East Central Europe, and ultimately the interconnection of the world through two world wars. Stephen Siegel is a professor of history at the University of Northern Colorado. He is the author of Mapping Europe's Borderlands, Russian Cartography in the Age of Empire, and Ukraine Under Western Eyes. His new book is Map Men, Transnational Lives and Deaths of Geographers in the Making of East Central Europe, published by the University of Chicago Press. Here's Stephen Siegel. So you you have this new book, this very interesting book on the the people who did geography of East Central Europe and mostly in the interwar period, uh, and it's titled Map Men, Transitional Lives and Debates of of Geographers in the Making of East Central Europe. And the title Map Men um, refers to a certain type of of your characters, a way to group all of your characters together. So I thought we'd just start by having you talk about what are map men and then who are the map men you're speaking about? Well, first of all, thanks, Sean, for hosting me. I can talk about map men as a conceptual category first and then introduce some of the characters to give them personalities and, in a sense, put clothes on them. I think as a conceptual category, first and foremost, the mapmen were humans. They lived three-dimensional lives. They made maps, of course. Some of them were very good at that. But there was a problem inherent to this three-dimensional world. And that was, in creating a map, they reduced the five senses to one. They, in East Central Europe, especially in the arc of my story from the 1870s to the 1950s, they reduced, categorically reduced, millions of people to colors, lines, pixels, dots from a single 
Archimedean point, and we can get all fancy about it and talk about um, the panoptical gaze and Foucault and geopolitics. But my approach to this, my strategy was to tell the story of these often despicable, privileged, ambitious provincial men out of post-Mittel Europa on their own terms to actually get into the dirty laundry of their lives. So I would describe them as failures. They were broken men, not, not quite T.S. Eliot's hollow men, but illiberal, frat boy networking kind of men. They belong to a boys club of professional geographers who were nationalizing the profession and thus excluding women and a lot of other people. Um, they were racists, transcultural racists. They were careerists, which is, I think, another great category of analysis. Um, they were passionate about the geosciences, but their dreams of becoming the next Humboldt or Livingstone or Columbus, um, or their love of reading the novels of Karl May, for example, made them creatures of the 19th century rather than the 20th century. And I think in their map fantasies and those infographics that they visualized, they were very much people who disguised their emotional lives, jealousy, anger, hope, despair, petty ivory tower grievances through their maps. So I think on the one hand, we can tell a very hagiographical story of them. They were mobile professionals. They developed the internationalization of geography. And then after World War I, that became virtually impossible with revisionism and those cast out of the profession. There's a, a hagiographic story. There's also a villainous story um, to the extent that they were smart and frustrated and self-important and egoistic, illiberal men. But I try to get between those two. There, there's, there's an uncomfortableness in the excluded middle, and that's really what the story of the book is about. So it, it's, really, it's really fascinating that you're able to, through the telling uh, the story of these men, and it's a lot of the you know, the backstory of the construction of these maps, but it, it's it's a fascinating thing to look at the map, which I think, and, and I think this is one of your main points when we get to the end of your story, that the map is something we really fetishize in the sense we take it, we take its truth value uh, at uh, somewhat on the surface and not really think about all of the back ideology and relationships that go behind in their creation. So to get at, you know, how these group of men develop, and they seem to coalesce around the life of Albert Pink. And so to start, what were this, the life of these men in their, their education and coming up into the profession before the outbreak of World War I? I think that's a great question. There's a profession before there was a profession. And Albert Pink, who is my glue to hold the story together had students. He was born in um, 1858. He lived to be 87 years old 
uh, his apartment was bombed out in 1944 and he fled Berlin to Prague. He was not a geopolitician and he earned his fame not just through maps. Um, it was he who had promos- proposed the one to one million map of the world in, in Bern in 1891, but his fame was earned as a geomorphologist. So what I try to do with Pink, who became uh, the chair of geography in Berlin before World War One, starting in 1906, uh, is explore his life and his pupils and his work as a colonial geographer who not only was passionate about the geosciences, that would include climatology, oceanography, uh, but also supported German interests. In fact, the Kaiser's war aims in World War I um, and taught a number of students from East Central Europe who came to study abroad with him, uh, including uh, probably the three most famous uh, for my purposes would be Eugenia Schromer of Poland, um, born in Galicia to a, a very old Schlachta noble family going all the way back to the 15th century. Stepan Rudnitsky of Ukraine, um, born 1877, died 1937, uh, was arrested in 1933 in Soviet Ukraine and, and then became part of the purges of the technical intelligentsia at Solopi Islands in 1937. Uh, and Jovan Svij, who's also very interesting, he's not one of my main characters, uh, but Svij was uh, a very important geographer from Serbia. Uh, he was the founder of the Serbian Geographical Society in 1910. Um, there are others who corresponded with Pank and who worked kind of under his tutelage. The most, the most important American of these, uh, I would argue, is Isaiah Bowman, um, who is a very important character in my book. Bowman was not a nobleman. Um, he, in fact, was born Canadian, a subject of Queen Victoria. And um, coming really from nowhere during the Gilded Age, he um, had great luck. Uh, to earn a scholarship to Harvard, where he studied under William Morris Davis, one of the founding fathers of the American geographical establishment. And through Davis met Hank um, before World War I. Now, um, I can come back to all of these characters. Um, my fifth is Count Balteleki, who's a slightly different case in Hungary. But Bowman was so important because he was the U.S., Chief Territorial Specialist for the peace settlements uh, after World War I. Um, so Bowman went to Paris, uh, in fact, traveling uh, together on the passenger ship with Woodrow Wilson um, in December of 1918. Um, Bowman had, was actually quite young at this point. He had no knowledge of East European languages, which should tell you something about how the Americans, um, with their lack of expertise, figured out territorial conflicts and questions, including um, those over Poland and, and national self-determination. 
In any case, um, Bowman became a, a very important individual. Um, he was the territorial specialist, uh, hugely influential um, in applying the 14 points. Uh, he later would become the president of Johns Hopkins University from uh, 1935 to 1948. So um, these are all characters who um, come out of the Ostmitteleuropa tradition, which is, I think, symbolized by Pank. Um, Pank really was somewhere between the first and second generations of German geographers after Karl Ritter and Alexander von Humboldt, who were also um, influential in Russia. Anyway, this was a different kind of trajectory out of Germany, out of Austria, out of German-speaking lands. And some of these pupils went west and other of these pupils went east. So that's uh, my story of um, these professional geographers over the course of 70 or 80 years. Now, as you pointed out, like all of these, these students uh, come together um, and then they disperse uh, and, and the relationship becomes a really transnational one, as you note in, in, in the book. It's a transnational intellectual relationship. And, and one of the things that I think is important to note is, as you say, all of these men come from a kind of provincial life. You know, they're not, they don't grow up in the centers of the cities. They all, except for Bowman, come from pretty, you know, good backgrounds, you know, kind of elite backgrounds. Um, so I think one of the things that's really important in your story is their, the intellectual culture and sociability around their relationship and, and also the fact of the, the performance of that culture and the masculinity that's a part of it. So talk about how the sociability con conceptions of masculinity work within these intellectual exchanges and interactions. I think there are two things to consider when one considers the performance of careerism. I'm going to use careerism here to explain both soci sociability and masculinity. The first point that I would make is that all of these men were very fragile. This is not a way of explaining away their privilege, but they came in the 1890s and 1900s to a discipline which was not entirely yet a discipline. If one thinks about the context of the historical establishment in the United States, Frederick Jackson Turner, the reception of Friedrich Ratzel, which, uh, by the way, uh, was by the geographer Ellen Church Semple in the United States, um, who had studied in Germany. Um, the notions of Lebensraum, which are always bandied about when one talks about Germans in the 1930s. These men were very fragile in the way that they approached the discipline. And uh, in the trajectory that I tell, which is a transnational trajectory going into Hungary, Poland, Germany, um, the Habsburg Empire, Ukraine, Galicia, West and East, and some other places, they were very uncertain whether or not they could succeed in that career. Um, in fact, to give one example, Count Paul Teleki, uh, who came from a very old Transylvanian family, 
also going back to the 14th, 15th, 16th centuries. He was the 17th generation Teleki. Um, he was fully multilingual, spoke um, French and German, considered himself a European, spoke Romanian to the peasants um, in Transylvania. Teleki is a perfect example because um, his father, Geza, who was also a Transylvanian count, um, hated the idea that his son would become a geographer. What's that? He asked. Um, he wanted Teleki Jr. to be a lawyer, a bureaucrat, to run for um, provincial office in Transylvania before World War One. So uh, these men come to geography, but they're really uncertain whether they can make it as a profession. Just one more very quick example. Um, I steal this idea from Willard Sunderland um, in The Baron's Cloak. Uh, Bowman, when he gets a scholarship to Harvard, uh, coming from the middle of nowhere in um, Berlin, now Kitchener, Ontario, uh, he arrives at Harvard with nothing to clothe him. He has one suit. He's absolutely nervous among all of these um, privileged men. Um, you know, Harvard uh, is separate from Radcliffe until the, the 1940s, so these are all men. Um, he doesn't know how to relate to déclassé socialists. Um, he picks up all of the prejudices of the early American geographical establishment represented by people like um, William, Morris uh, William Morris Davis and um, Nathaniel South Southgate Shaler, very New England type men. So uh, I think the first point is, is really about their, their fragility. Um, and one sees this in Bowman who is very green and very ambitious. He knows absolutely nothing about Russia and Eastern Europe. In fact, he had gone on expeditions to um, South America. Um, he's describing indigenous peoples in the 1900s and 19-teens as, as primitives. Um, he is the person who ends up mapping half of Europe, more than half of Europe, um, for the Americans by studying census data and maps and statistics and, and all of those things. Uh, on the second point, and I think this is something I, I'd like to come back to a little bit, their masculinity, all of these men wore masks um, in their performance of expertise. They had to be experts. Um, and uh, this is, I think I'm writing this book during the, the 2000 teens. So uh, as someone who is very aware of how social media often tells us nothing um, <laughs> about individuals in their three in their three dimensional lives, I think this is extraordinarily important, um, especially after the long World War One and the effects of October the Russian Revolution um, many times over, because in the 1920s, the nationalization of the geography um, profession is also the masculinization of the geography profession to the point where maybe with one exception, and that's Eugenia Schromer, who's involved um, in organizations for uh, Polish geographical pedagogy and geographical teachers, there are very few women that these men accept into the profession. 
and certainly not on their on their own terms. These are men who are part of a geographical establishment represented by pre-war 19th century progress, colonialism, imperialism, and nationalism. Is there a certain, in that masculinity, is there a certain militarism behind it? Uh, I mean, despite even, and I mean, we'll get, we'll get to the effects of World War One, but even before the war, is there a certain, like, militaristic tone in their intellectual exchange and how they conceptualize, say, geography and, and create maps and things like this? I think for them, maps are a way of marking turf. And really, uh, if, if one studies this era of high territorialization, as, as Charles Meyer, the Harvard historian, um, explains it from, say, the 1850s to the 1970s, um, all of these men were involved in military struggles one way or another. Uh, Eugeniusz Romer, the Polish geographer who comes out of Lvov, Lemberg, Lviv, certainly he doesn't, he doesn't accept it as Lviv or Lvov. Uh, he, his brother is um, involved in the Polish-Ukrainian war. And in fact, his brother um, had trained with Piłsudski before World War One in the Habsburg Empire. Um, Romer's great enemy is really not even the Germans, it, it's the Ukrainians, or it, the Ukrainian Ruthenians insofar as he associates them with being anarchists, primitives, German proxies, um, those sorts of things. And it, that prejudice that Romer has continues in a very militaristic kind of way, even though he has great skepticism toward the military takeover of geography and the interwar Polish state. The prejudice persists all the way through to the end of his life uh, in 1954. Um, and, you know, there are many other examples. Uh, Teleki, too, his great adversary, even before the Trianon trauma, I call it a mellow trauma in the book, um, his antagonist is the Little Entente. So it's the Czechoslovaks um, and Yugoslavs. Um, primarily, which which drive him largely um, holding on through the 20s to this nationalist revisionism as an ideology into the arms of the Germans and, for that matter, the Italians um, in Mussolini and Hitler in, in the 1920s and 1930s. So militarism as a form of territorial turf wars, I, I think, um, colors their masculinity. These are not peace activists by 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 any stretch of the imagination. Right. And and also there's, you know, the nationalism, but also nationalism in a sense of in a post-colonial moment in the in the sense of, right, the borderlands in the East Central Europe is after World War One, um it breaks up into many independent states. You know, you have the collapse of the Austro-Hungarian Empire, you have the collapse of the Russian Empire, and you have the shaking of the German Empire. And uh and it's interesting that their nationalist, the groups that some of these men see as their nationalist enemies are not necessarily the great nation states of Europe, but these various minority territory, new territories that have, you know, developed out of the cataclysm of World War One. That's exactly right. And, and I think if one tries to understand their 
emotional prejudices and, you know, the sort of palimpsest of their maps. Uh, one not only has to look at the Giro Comuna and how that's applied um, in the intersection of anti-communism and anti-Semitism, but with also with the persistence of colonial geography, um, because colonial geography persists through every single geographical society in the interwar period. So even the losers, quote unquote, not the victors, but the losers, I problematize this, but the losers of World War I share in the mentality of, of Ostforschung, of Revisionspolitik, um, their societies and means of mapping in Czechoslovakia or in Serbia or uh, in Poland are, are really um, long-standing effects of World War I and, and I think the Russian Revolution, which needs to be inserted back into this story. Talk about that. How? What was the effect of, of World War I and the Russian Revolution on the, these geographers? Um, I think... The biggest effect was the enhancement of their anxiety. Um, a good case is Poland. Uh, and in the correspondence between Bowman and Romer, um, Romer, in fact, comes to the United States uh, before World War I. He's part of the American Geographical Society's very famous expedition across North America. Uh, Romer and Pank and, Pank and um, Bowman all know each other very, very well. Uh, Romer had studied with Pank back in the 1890s and a kind of study abroad from Galicia into uh, in, to Berlin and to Vienna. Um, so to Rudnitsky. In any case, the Russian Revolution forces them to make very difficult choices. Um, Romer's choice is, is, I think, simpler than Rudnitsky's choice in Ukraine. Rudnitsky uh, is um, caught as a bourgeois nationalizing geographer who hopes to unite Ruthenians and Ukrainians on the two sides of the Zbruch River. So his geographies, which become enormously popular in the latter stages of World War I, and with the support of Pank are translated into German and that sort of thing, allows him for a harder choice, I think, across the divide than Romer has. For Romer, his, his anti-Germanism and anti-Ukrainianism are never quite in doubt. Um, and that actually leads him not to be an anti-communist, if you can follow all of the anti-antis here, that he has a, a wildly interesting correspondence in the 1920s with um, the most prominent Russian geographical family. It's the Semyonovs, Semyonov Tianchansky, um, Pyotr uh, Tianchansky the Elder, uh, and then his son Venyamin, who is a, a very prominent urban geographer in Soviet space in the 1920s. For, for Romer, having the Russians in the world of geographical science is never a question. And that's actually interesting because when one thinks about Polish illiberalism and the right and peace today, 
Well, of, of course, you know, there is this automatic switch to anti-Russianism, anti-communism, anti, anti and so forth. It was actually very different on very different terms, because what Romer wanted in Poland was to make the Polish state as big as possible, um, to go back to the world before the partitions in 1772, or maybe even back even farther to the 17th century, to create not a Poland for the Poles, but a Poland within the borders of the of the first Rzeczpospolita, which could be as big as possible. If one compares him to Rudnitsky, Ukrainian Rudnitsky, um, I can um, talk a little bit about what happens to him during the purges, but Rudnitsky during the 1920s has to make an extraordinarily difficult choice, which is a product of the effects of the Russian Revolution, and that is, in 1925, he decides to go to Soviet Kharkiv, Kharkov Kharkiv, and to start a German-style geographical society. Now, as we know, as things unravel after, um, well, unravel is a, is a difficult word, but as things change after um, Lenin's stroke, after Lenin's three strokes, after Lenin's death in 1924, well, the idea in communist Soviet Ukraine under Skripnitsky of having a German-style imperial colonial geographical establishment just will not fly. Wow, it's, it's not reading a lot of political tea leaves there. <laughs> no, no, no. And, and, and Rudinsky, of, of all of these people, was extremely naive. Uh, he thought that the communists in Ukraine would not only produce his political maps, ethnographic maps showing the dispersal of Ukrainians um, um, into, into Crimea, going west, not just in Habsburg borders, but I mean, his project really didn't last very long at all from 1926 up until uh, 1933, whereas Romer's absolutely flourished. Romer was the success story of these geographers um, in Poland, because there was a huge demand for Polish visibility after the 123 years of um, being a stateless nation. So uh, Romer could impress, and, and believe me, he did, upon the world's geographers in France and in the United States and in the UK, um, the need to make Poland as large as possible. Since you started talking about uh, Stepan Rudnitsky's story, a bit of his story, why don't we uh, have you talk about what happens to him and, and his fate in the 30s? Well, uh, I think this is also where Ukrainian nationalist um, history leaves a lot to be desired. Um, in the book, I think, first of all, it's really important to note that Rudnitsky was a German or a transnational German might be a better way of explaining this. Um, he was absolutely fluent in German. His father uh, was the head of a gymnasium, in fact, uh, multiple schools um, in Eastern Galicia. Rudnitsky was not reducible as a Ukrainian or a Ruthenian coming out of the Habsburg Empire to the Ukrainian language. He was multilingual. Um, he did research in Czech. He published and, in fact, polemicized with Romer in the 19 aughts in Polish. Um, 
he he himself translated his uh, Ukrainian geography, Ukraina Land und Volk, from Ukrainian into German, and then it was later translated by you know Ukrainian diaspora lobbyist activist societies in New Jersey, which um, had huge effect on on um, on uh, Ukrainian geography and political geography to this day. Anyway, what happens to Rudnitsky is. Um, by the time Stalin comes to power in 1928, Rudnitsky begins a correspondence with uh, his brother um, Stanislav or Stashnistransky. And he, Rudnitsky, as he sees the communists start taking over these geographical institutes, this is kind of a, a more typical story of, of Stalinist um, science, but I call it on German terms the Wissenschaft Wars. When Ruditsky sees these things happening, he has to make a decision because he's been elevated from the 20s before Stalin into the Academy of Sciences. He is the person behind these geographical institutes in Kharkiv. By the time we reach 1933, and that's after Hitler, Hitler comes to power with the Enabling Act, the easy way for the Soviets to dismiss Rudnitsky and arrest him and get rid of him is through political labels. So the three labels that are attached to this founding father of Ukrainian geography are bourgeois, fascist, and counter-revolutionary. So up until um, 1937, when he's um, finally um, executed by the NKVD together with, uh, I think it's 266 different people. They're, um, they're Ukrainians, they're um, you know, writers, uh, members of the technical intelligentsia, theater directors, you name it. it. It's part of the Ukrainian national intelligentsia. When, when they're executed in 1937, the story of his German connections are... Um, covered up and, and I think um, at the same time also inflated. There, there's a real paradox to this. There, there are 10 charges that Rudnitsky faces and in fact none of them are true. Um, but the one charge which I think is most interesting if, if one reads my book in, in this chapter is the list of the charges uh, was his association with German geographers. So the association with Penck, because he had gone in 1918 to, to Penck's, you know, very innocent Festschrift. Um, it was for Penck's 60th birthday. Uh, it was a celebration of the geographical sciences. Um, Rudnitsky had um, been involved with um, Penck's successor, who is Norbert Krebs, uh, who succeeds him in Berlin. Um, Krebs becomes the new professor of geography in 1926. It's Pank who actually tries to get Rudnitsky out of Ukraine in 1933. So these associations of um, Rudnitsky as a Ukrainian geographer with the German colonial or neo-colonial or folkish conservative geographical establishment is a very, very interesting and neglected story. Also, with it going on with this, the, the personal relationships between these men, you know, Pank trying to get Rudnitsky out of Ukraine, but one of the, the intimate relationships and long relationships you devote a lot of time to is that between, I'd say, a Bowman and um, uh, Yevgenitz uh, Romer. 
so so talk about that. How did in this transatlantic roamers in Poland, Bowmans in the United States? So how did uh, what is the relationship as map men across the Atlantic? It's a lobbying relationship. That's the short answer. But it, it's a lobbying relationship that develops out of the specific traditions of Ost-Mittel-Europa geography, which extend beyond geopolitics. Um, I, I was always awestruck when I, I first began tackling um, geography and cartography as a graduate student uh, under the, the tutelage of Mark Basson um, by how much geography had been reduced following the spatial turn of the 1920s to Karl Haushofer, to Rudolf Chelein, um, to kind of a kind of Weltpolitik. And Bowman and, and Romer in their relationship first at Versailles and then through the 1920s, 30s, and 40s, they have a, almost a 40-year correspondence personally in letters, uh, I think, and at one and the same time, represent geopolitics and at the same time represent the deep passion for the geosciences, which is lost when the world turns much more geopolitical, that is Nazi-Soviet, in, in East Central Europe in the 1930s. I'll give a couple of examples of this. So, um, as I mentioned, Bowman and Romer meet each other. Um, Isaiah Bowman, Eugeniusz Romer meet each other first in the, in the United States, in the expedition across the United States. Bowman tries to get Romer to Yale, also uh, displaying a good amount of, of naivete, in the middle of World War I. This proves impossible because, um, as it turns out, Pink in 1916 is trying to get Romer arrested. <laughs> While at the same time, Pink and Romer are corresponding cordially with each other, trying to keep up the establishment of 19th century geography. There, there is something that's going on behind the scenes. These men are, are extremely deft and, and devious and using each other and their maps as tools in order to get exactly what they want. It, it, it probably should not be surprising. But of course, you know, Pank and Romer, despite their cordial correspondence, um, have a falling out in 1917. They actually will speak to each other again. Uh, in 1934, when Bowman tries to lead the charge for Polish-German reconciliation in 1939, what a year! What a year to do that um, at, at the International Geographical Congress, which happens in, in Warsaw, which is important for a, a lot of different reasons. Um, it's it's when um, 40 um, German geographers for the first time are welcomed back into the establishment after World War One. Anyway. Long story short, Bowman and Romer keep up this very, very personal and very emotional um, correspondence all the way through the aftermath of World War I. Bowman uses Romer's maps in order to write the book for which he is best known. It's called The New World. Um, it's an excursus published in 1921, translated into Russian and Chinese uh, about uh, the American role in the world. And Bowman uses Romer's maps. Romer had been knocking on Bowman's door literally at the Hotel de Crillon in Paris um, between January and, and March of 1919 while the peace talks were going on. 
So this is, I think, um, in the Bowman-Romer correspondence, one of the great lost stories of World War I, the influence of these two men and their maps and their friendship and how they um, corresponded, um, reconstructed the, the networks for geology and cartometrics, um, how they complained about how their expertise in the 1920s um, was being ignored by politicians. You know, this like this, the standard complaint of Sovietologists from the beginning of uh, from the beginning of time. So um, these two men, while wanting to be heralded as masculine experts in geography, experts in geomorphology, became gradually much more um, in the world of political geography and, and geopolitics uh, in the years preceding World War II. And their friendship is, is the one friendship that really persists. Um, you know, Rudnitsky is a victim of the purges. Teleki commits suicide um, in Hungary in April of, of 1941. Um, and I, I would say um, what Romer represents is the planting of the Polish question in the United States. Not, not to get all conspiratorial about this, but Romer and Bowman as conservatives, anti-communist, anti-communist in, in, in Bowman's case, but not really in Romer's case, what, what Romer is ultimately is a kind of Polish imperial mapper, geographer, who wants to gain purchase, gain an audience for the Polish question. And, and Bowman is his kind of channel hmm. for doing that. Interesting. Um, let's talk about some of the maps themselves and what they mean and what they, what they can tell us about these men, but also the period in which they're working with. You write that through geog- though the geography had obtained scientific status – Maps were still colored by power and privilege, anxiety and fear, biological notions of race and ethnicity, and sexual difference. So talk a bit about the, the ideological concepts that, that are embedded in these maps, and particularly the ethnic and, and racial ideas. Sure. I, I think that's a great question. And um, I would just mention... Um, the secondary literature is, is so important to understanding this. Um, there are many, I think, very, very interesting um, new books uh, by women in geography and in feminist geography and, and geopolitics. So, I, I mean, I just want to I, I want to draw from them a little bit in in, ta- in talking about this and, and mention a few a few names. So. Uh, Karen Vigan, who is at Stanford, who's been publishing on uh, the cartography of Japan. Zadie Antrim, who just published uh, at Trinity College in, in Hartford, published an amazing book just published in February, uh, covering a thousand years of the mapping of the Middle East, um, dealing with questions of, of um, pertaining to Egypt and Syria and Palestine and, and many, many other countries. Um, Jordana Dim, who's worked on Latin American cartography uh, for, um, I think, almost 20 years. Sumati Ramaswamy, who published a wonderful book called Mapping Mother India. Um, Karen Pinto, Susan Shulton, Palmira Brummett. These are all people who I think have taken what is my dominant paradigm, and that's a post-positivist understanding of ethnographic cartography, 
And the elevation, as, as it happened in a Soviet context of ethnic geography and ethnographic cartography to a nauka, to a science, uh, again, um, this is something um, where the intersectionality of race and gender and class becomes extremely important. The reason for that is because um, these geographers, especially, um, I would say, Teleki with his red map, the very famous Carte Rouge, um, which renders indigenous populations um, plus Romanians in Transylvania um, after World War I and in the context of Trion, basically invisible. Um, there, are, there are white spots and white spaces on these monochromatic often maps or, or, or maps which um, privilege one sort of titular majoritarian nationality above others. Uh, and I think in the history of Soviet cartography, you, you see this later on, despite um, Lenin's uh, prohibitions of, about raising the great Russians chauvinistically to, you know, the sort of primus inter pares. In the interwar East Central European tradition, th there's really not a taboo against this, the raising, the raising of a, a titular ethnicity or nationality, nationalité, nationalité, uh, to a privileged position. Um, and one sees this especially in the revisionist cartography, where there is an elision between race and ethnicity. I argue, and I have argued actually in, in mapping Europe's borderlands as well, um, that Russian liberal imperial cartography and uh, I would say interwar East Central European illiberal car cartography raises this ethnic principle to a science such that the, the maps, because of their, their order, because of their persuasiveness, um, become institutionalized in the, in the school systems. Um, and, and especially for Soviet cartography, one could see this, but since um, Mapman is not a history of Soviet cartography, I think the best examples of this in the interwar period, racially speaking, um, happen to be Penck's 1925 Volks- und Kulturboden map. Um, this particular map, which is really a kind of fantasy map, about German colonial settlement to the frontiers of the East. This is a borderless German geography, you know, like Fyodor Tuchev's kind of geography. It, it's a geography of frontiers. Um, and this particular racial geography is um, part and parcel of German Ostforschung. Um, it is anti-Slavic. It is anti-Semitic. Um, it is anti-communist. It is really um, against the idea of any kind of territorial integrity for um, states established in the interwar period where Germans are relegated into a minority. And that's ab above all Czechoslovakia and Poland. So this map, um, which I discuss quite a lot in the book, um, is part of the objectionist impulse racially, nationally, ethnically against the Treaty of Versailles, obviously, but also against the Locarno Pact protagonists and supporters, like Prime Minister Gustav Stresemann in, in Germany, like socialists, like social democrats, 
who who hope for a different um, a different kind of political and territorial model. So um, this is a bit different from the the Soviet you know affirmative action principle in, in the 1920s. You know all of that wonderful work of of Terry Martin and Francine Hirsch and and, and Ron Suni and others. Um, it's it's a different way of understanding the 20s because it's a revival of colonial geography of the German style and then the transplantation of that racial and colonial geography, not just to the victors like Poland or Czechoslovakia or Yugoslavia, but also to the defeated powers like like you know Bulgaria and and Hungary and of course um, Germany and to some extent Italy. So how does somebody like Pink? Uh, and and your other characters, of course. What is their experience with the rise of Nazism and, of course, the war? I mean, you said that Teleki, of course, commits suicide in, in 1941. But how did how did the others uh, uh, experience this period? Yeah, I, I mean, Teleki. Uh, just to mention him for one moment, uh, he he writes a very famous suicide note. Um, and when I, uh, in, in um, April, uh, three days after, um, uh, the early morning of April 3rd, um, 1941, you know, he ends his life in Budapest. And it's absolutely impossible for all historians to know the details. These are unknow- unknowable historical details. You could spend a lifetime in archives. Um, there's a great, great biography of, of Teleki. I, I um, especially have drawn from by Balach Ablansi, who's very talented um, historian at Elta in Budapest. Anyway, Teleki commits suicide when he realizes that Hungary can no longer be in neutral and that Hitler is going to use Hungarian territory as he does three days later with the Fermat for the invasion of, of Yugoslavia on, on April 6, 1941, um, and the, when the strikes begin by the Luftwaffe on, on Belgrade. Um, but as, as for the others, um, I think it's very important to understand the alternative trajectories of conservatism in the 1930s um, and the fact that not all conservatives were Nazis. Uh, I, I don't mean this as a, as a blanket statement exactly. Of course, there were plenty of conservatives and, and conservative members of the academic establishment, Mandarins, technical intelligentsia, who sympathized with the Nazi party and the famous case of Heidegger as a philosopher. I mean, his, his philosophy is very, very anti-modern and would fit very well into folkish geography. But Pink is an interesting case because although he supports German militaristic aims and, and ultimately, as I um, show in the book, has this correspondence with the Swedish geographer Sven Hedin, um, Pank, as a conservative uh, in 1933, 1934, is a retired geographer in Leipzig. His mapping is not Aryan, or at least not in the same way. Focus ge- geography, neo-colonial German geography, emphasizing German militaristic great powerness, der Jobness, um, is different from the way the Nazis then will elevate Aryan racial science and um, ancestral anti-Semitism and the exclusion of Jews from being citizens. Um, it is very different. So Pankis is actually, um, as a conservative, I think if that label is fair, quite skeptical about selling his wares as an expert to the Nazi party 
and working within the Nazi establishment to draw maps. There are younger geographers, in fact, his, um, one of his protégés, Emil Meinen, who's very in influential in the 20th century, um, who do this. Meinen joins the Nazi party in 1937, is mapping for the Nazis. Hank really now is a kind of elderly man in his 70s and, and early 80s, stays mostly aloof. You know, he takes walks with Friedrich Meinecke, who's a liberal historian who writes the famous book on the German catastrophe in 1946 after the war. Um, I think it, one has to create a broader category to understand the technical intelligentsia. And my broader category is, is illiberalism. But it, it's an illiberalism that's not the illiberalism of the 2010s or, you know, the um, sort of charges of meddling and things like that. The, these these are um, these are men who are far from from Russia Gate and the American Dem Democratic Party. They're nineteenth century, right? They're they're nineteenth century, almost like you know European Midwesterners, right? Uh, they they understand as Bowman, who is a, a Midwesterner, they understand geography um, fictively by reading, you know not Franz Kafka, but Karl May, um, they want to be able to ground their Heimat, their territory, their home, ultimately in a particular country, a particular childhood, I would even say, of the, of the 19th century. They're not looking forward as, as radical progressives, cer certainly not. And their illiberalism, um, one can see this with Bowman in his uh, support for free markets, um, it is of a very different, I think, 19th century sort. Yeah, it's kind of a, it's a, it's a mixture of kind of nostalgia and anti-modernism, like a, an anti, you know, trying to maintain the, the folkishness of their particular society, the provincialism of the society, it seems to me. That, that's right. And in the book, I, I tell it as a, as a multi-generational saga. So it, it, is a, it is a kind of Turgenia fathers and sons story. When one um, has the, the fathers, these map men, trying to support, they don't support their daughters at all, um, they support their sons um, to uh, maintain their status within the technical intelligentsia, to become just like them, ge geographers, mappers, people who are running um, cartographical institutes, um, and, and they support, I think, in this conservative sense of continuity through the 1930s and even 1940s and 1950s, um, Romer, who survives World War II by surviving in a monastery for three years in, in Lvov, um, they're trying to maintain their kind of family and clannish and, kin and kinship networks in a bourgeois geographical kind of way to, to support an establishment which really, after the 1950s, um, with the rise of Marxist geography, especially um, in, in the West, in Western Europe and the U.S., no, no longer exists. It's, it's, a, it's a dying world. And finally, you write that in your, your conclusion, you write that, and I found this incredibly curious, um, you write that in the digital age, cartophilia is everywhere. I mean, first, I didn't know cartophilia was a fetish, but but I, I like it. But also it reminded me of this debate. Um, I think it was in probably in 2000. It was after, of course, the annexation of Crimea, the debate about Google Maps and, and does Google Map put Crimea part of Russia or does it put it part of Crimea? There was a whole debate about that. Anyways, 
First, what do you mean by this cartophilia, and how does your story of of the Mapamen help us reflect on our present day fetish with maps and their truth value and meaning? Well, I, it's a great question, and it's a presentist question, and I, I, I think one um, can start talking about the present without falling into the, the present presentist fallacy of, of reinterpreting the 1930s through, you know, that lens. Um, first of all, I, cartophilia is not my neologism. Um, there, there is a book, which is um, quick promo, published also by the University of Chicago Press, um, by a very talented um, historian, Catherine Dunlop, uh, who um, uh, actually is the daughter of John Dunlop, the um, great Chechnya specialist. Anyway, she writes this um, book, which is a magnificent excursion into the story of Alsace-Lorraine uh, about cartophilia and the search for identity, the struggle um, between the French and Germans uh, in the history of, of Alsace-Lorraine uh, through um, the Franco-Prussian War and then the two world wars and then, you know, sort of the rapprochement that happened in the European um, community in the 1950s. Um, anyway, I think, and I, I argue elsewhere in some of the um, articles that I've been publishing um, in German, um, German works, which are, are dually in German and English, um, that cartophilia is kind of a disease. It, it's a disease because of its reductionism. Um, it, it's, I think, an occupational hazard for anyone who is in the Twitterverse um, or Reddit or Facebook. And I, I think there's there's a curious thing happening. I'm working on this in, in my next book, which is a, a minimalist um, history of lines and, and fixed points and and um, and colors. Um, and scales, uh, there, there's a, a real, I think, hazard to this, because the more maps appear in social media, the more they appear without people, with without humans. Um, and uh, for um, the Ukrainian conflict, I, I think uh, I researched actually um, the mapping of Ukraine and the viral mapping of Ukraine in February and March of, 19, of, of 2014. Um, I studied these maps which were being passed around virally by lazy journalists working on deadlines, um, just going to Wikipedia and finding the first, you know, blue and yellow image that they that they could they could put their hands on or, or put, put their mouse on, I would say, as clickbait. Um, there is a great kind of irresponsibility of um, Western journalists, I will be frank about this, um, when it came not to doing, let's say, anthropological or sociological or source-based journalistic research on the ground. There are now great, great journalists who are covering the Donbass conflict and Crimea and so forth. But... BBC was guilty of this. Um, the Guardian, New York Times was guilty of this. Um, Mother Jones, which I read um, regularly, uh, Mother Jones had a specific kind of fetish for the pipelines maps, for um, the, um, you know, as these are the maps which are going to explain the conflict. Um, there were there were actual sites. The Washington Post had these. It wasn't monkey cage, but they had um, you know sort of ways to get people to read the Washington Post, starting with 
this is the one map you will need to understand the Ukrainian conflict. Um, and, and, and so there's cartophilia in that, but there's also cartophobia. And that's the, that's the inverse of this. So, you know, the idea that Russians are, are influencing us around every single corner by um, spamming social media with maps. Uh, well, you know, maybe this changes uh, the votes, as Ron Sumi put it, of, of 10,000 people in Michigan. But I, I'm, not, I'm not really sure that there's an easy way to trace the persuasiveness and the influence of maps. Um, my basic point is that whenever you see a map, um, I, I do this on Twitter since I've now joined it reluctantly. When, when, whenever you see a map without people in, in, in which everything is colored in, then you should be on alert. That, that is what should signal the alarm. And, um, to go back to this in the 19th century, you know, Joseph Conrad, otherwise known as Yusuf Korzhenyovsky, predicted this. He, he talked in 1899 in writing um, Heart of Darkness about a future world where he could no longer go for any adventure, quote unquote, because this is great for post-colonial critics, right? He could no longer go anywhere because everything was colored in. <laughs> and, and I think this is true of the Russian-Ukrainian conflict with, with the claim to Crimea. There is an invisibility of Crimean Tatars um, unless you get to the point of drawing complex maps like um, choropleth maps, um, dot maps. If you um, homogeneously claim it as blue or claim it as yellow or claim it as red or whatever – you are rendering invisible the populations and the three-dimensional humans who actually live there. So, you know, as for the whole notion of, of weaponized politics and, and this, I think there has to be a, a longer historical analysis to how those particular kinds of geographies came into existence. That was Steven Siegel, a professor of history at the University of Northern Colorado. He is the author of Mapping Europe's Borderlands, Russian Cartography in the Age of Empire, and Ukraine Under Western Eyes. His new book is Map Men, Transnational Lives and Deaths of Geographers in the Making of East Central Europe, published by the University of Chicago Press. I'm your host, Sean Guillory, and this is the SRB Podcast. The SRB Podcast is sponsored by the Center for Russian East European and Eurasian Studies at the University of Pittsburgh, and listeners like you. If you enjoy this podcast and want to help support it, please take a moment to share it on Facebook and Twitter, like my Facebook page, Sean's Russia Blog, write a review on iTunes, or recommend the show to your friends. The SRB podcast comes cheap, but it's not free to make. You can help support it by joining the table of ranks at seansrussiablog.org. Thanks to all my high excellencies, high wellborns and noblenesses for your continued patronage. You can find past shows on iTunes and SoundCloud, or you can download them directly from seansrussiablog.org as well. Until next time, bye.
Conservative flashing down the street, pointing their plastic finger at me. <laughs> Over soon, my kind of drop and dive. 